0: Thank you, Seth, and thank you all for the warm birthday wish. I appreciate that. You know how much I love you. Mark 15, verses 16 through 20 is where we're going to be this morning. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of God. You can be seated. While you're being seated Will you please bow with me? Lord God, as we look at this text, we cannot help but love you even more, Lord, for what you did for us through your dear son, Jesus. Father, and I pray that this morning you would cause us to love you more and walk in greater obedience to you, Father, remembering once again just how much You love us and just how devoted the son is to fulfilling the will of the father in taking upon himself the wrath of God that he did not deserve, but doing it for deserving sinners. So please, Father, help us to be like him. I pray that that's the outcome of this message this morning is that sinners are drawn and saved and those of us that do know you already are made more like Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, welcome again to worship at Christ Fellowship this morning. When someone very special to you, uh, who you love very much, who gets treated in an unjust and disgraceful way, it can cause all kinds of emotions to well up in you, can it not? But to compound the situation Further, when that person who's so very special, who you love so much, is allowing himself to be treated in those unjust and disres- disrespectful and disgraceful ways, so that you don't have to be treated in those ways, then yes, the outrage over the ill treatment is still there, but it now adds to it a a broken-hearted gratitude towards that someone who loves you so much and is willing to suffer in your place for you. Those emotions get mixed together. Outrage for the injustice, but then also, oh my goodness, look what he is doing for me so that I don't have to have that happen to me. Just all kinds of emotions run together, don't they? When I was preparing for this sermon and reading the text over and over and over again, that's what I do as part of my preparation. It's just making sure I know exactly what's in the text. And to do that, just read it and read it and read it and saturate my mind and my heart with it. There was a moment when I was really having to hold back tears because this portion of Scripture, though you can read through it so quickly, I could have read through it even Much more quickly than I did, couldn't I? But the treatment of our Lord Jesus here, when you understand who he really is and what he was really doing there, it's heartbreaking when you love him so much, is it not? Why? Well, because Jesus is who he is. Jesus is, he's awesome and he's beautiful, he's compassionate. He's dependable. He's eternal. He's faithful. He's good. He's holy. He's impartial. He's just. He's kind, loving, merciful. He's near. He's omnipotent. He's patient. He's righteous, sovereign, trustworthy, unchanging, victorious, wonderful. And zealous for his Father's glory. He's all those things and more. And yet, he's being treated as if he were atrocious and base and contemptible and defective and empty and flawed and good for nothing. He's being treated as if he is some heinous, inferior piece of junk who's lousy, no good pernicious, reprehensible, sinful, unwholesome, a vile, wretched waste of space. That's why it's so hard to read this. That's why it's so hard in going over this to not be in tears because someone so wonderful is being treated so horrible. And so in verse 16, as we we start off here, we see that he's led away into the palace, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion against him. So Pilate, we know from last week, handed Jesus over to death. Though he found nothing of which he could condemn him to death, however, he hands him over to death, we learned last week, to appease the crowd, and now the process really begins for Jesus. The process of drinking deep of the entire wrath of God. This is, this is where it really starts to take place. Before this, he was kept in the area that was designated for those who were about to go to trial or those who were under trial at the moment. Now he's he's really being led into the belly of the beast the real path to the cross starts starts here and it says a whole battalion comes to him around him what's the what's a roman battalion well in my studies i found two different numbers a battalion can either be 2 Hundred men at that time in history, or I also saw 600 men. Quite the discrepancy, I know that, but it really doesn't make a huge difference for what's happening to Jesus right now. Being encircled by 200 men, or being encircled by 600 men, he is the focus of such hatred and disdain at this point, and mockery. And only a certain number can even get at him anyway at one time. So 200 or 600, either way, it's a whole battalion. This large number of Roman soldiers who've just been released upon the Lord Jesus, which reminded me of that psalm, Psalm 22, 16. This is a fulfillment of that for sure. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Gentiles are sometimes referred to as dogs in the text of Scripture. Um, Even still today, you guys have heard me mention this before, that there is a, a, a name that Jews have for Gentiles. It's the word goyim, which means Gentile dog, and it's quite the insult. But this is what we see, don't we? Romans all around Jesus, about to start mocking him horribly, And I believe it fulfills this reference. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. You just think of sharks going around prey or wolves going around prey. It's just his attack is imminent and they care nothing for him because they don't know who he is. Had they known who he was, of course, they wouldn't be nagging at him. They would be kneeling before him, wouldn't they? And so it begins, look at verse 17, and they clothe him in a purple cloak. In Jesus' day, producing the color purple as a dye for, for clothing was a very tedious process, as you might know, and that's why this purple cloth cost so much. It was the color that, of, of wealth, Only wealthy people could wear this color, and of course, that's why we see it so often on royalty in that day, which is why they chose this color for Jesus, the Roman soldiers, as instruments in the hand of God for the purpose of executing his wrath upon the sin bearer at this moment. Their mockery of Jesus begins. The purple cloak is placed upon Jesus as the first Form of mockery here. And we know from verse 15 earlier, last week, you might recall, that Pilate had already handed Jesus over to be scourged, to be whipped. He thought maybe that will appease the crowd. And of course it didn't. They were crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! So we have a Jesus now unclothed with fresh wounds upon his back. From the whips. And so the Roman soldiers, instead of returning Jesus' normal clothing to him just yet, decide to make sport of him, of this one that they've been hearing about. This one who they've been hearing is called the King of the Jews. He's called the King of the Jews. Let's place a purple robe upon him then, since he's a king. And so now we have this picture. You have to also recall that while he was waiting to be tried, some of the soldiers were bored, and as you might recall, they were already buffeting him, hitting him, prophesy, who will hit you next? Remember, they would blindfold him. So picture this. We've got Jesus standing there, probably with a swollen lip, possibly blood from his nose from being hit. Now he's also wincing in pain, having to wear this robe that's just, on his fresh open back. And they're laughing and they're pointing and they care nothing about him. But even though we have him in a picture like that, we're still reminded that Jesus is a king. Even in that form, the image that we would have seen that day would still remind us what Jesus is laid aside in order to come to us. He was, remember, clothed in majesty before he stepped down to planet Earth, shining forever in all of his glory, worshiped by angels surrounding him, holy, 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 now mocked and surrounded by wicked and vile men, but still, still, In that image, we're reminded of Mark 10, 45, aren't we? You might recall, Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The purple robe reminds us of what Jesus laid aside. He actually laid aside royalty to come to us, not to be served any longer. At least momentarily, he stepped down to serve. This is why he's now being mocked. The rest of verse 17 tells us that they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. It was probably at that moment, we don't know, but probably at that moment, seeing Jesus standing there in the purple cloak that maybe one of the Roman soldiers said something to the effect of, doesn't doesn't a king need a crown too? And then one of the Childish and foolish soldiers picks up thorns and starts to turn them into a rough circle of sorts. A cruel crown is then placed on Jesus' head. They force it upon his head. No concern for Jesus' discomfort, his, his pain, his bloodshed. No concern at all, actually. The goal was Jesus' discomfort and pain and bloodshed. That's what they wanted. These were vile men, foolish, heartless, immature. But they were also the instruments in the hand of God, carrying out his wrath upon sin. The sin that man brought into the world, the sin that you and I are guilty of was upon Jesus, was upon the Son of Man. The sin of man was now upon the Son of Man. But with these thorns we're also reminded of something. This is This is a really neat connection that I had not connected before. Do you know the first mention of thorns in the Bible? It's found in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, right after sin enters into the world. That's the very first mention of thorns in the scripture. Part of sin's curse, as you might recall, was a curse upon the ground itself, wasn't it? In Genesis 3, 17 and 18, it says this, And to Adam God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you the thorns on jesus's head are as if they're a a sign of the curse a sign of the curse upon the earth and now worn upon the head of him who came to earth to do away with that curse by becoming a curse Galatians 3, 13 tells us that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Jesus is essentially, at this point, the king of the curse. He is wearing on his head the very representation of the curse. And he's showing us that he became, he is becoming that curse for us. He's wearing the very sign of the curse upon his head. Biblically also, thorns are a sign that, that ground has either been neglected or rejected or both. What do I mean? Well, in, in the Old Testament, when the Lord allowed the Babylonians to come in and invade Israel because of the persistent and pervasive Sin with which his people continued to walk in, though he warned them for years and years and years and years. People act like God's got this hot anger that as soon as they sin for the first time, God just opens up the earth and swallows them. No, no. He was patient for hundreds of years with them and sent them prophet after prophet after prophet before any of this happened. So please, let's not let other people tell us our view of God. Let's let the Bible tell us our view of God. And he was so very patient for so long before this happened. But it did happen as he said it would happen if they continued in the persistent and pervasive sin. And the Lord spoke about the invasion in Isaiah. Isaiah 5, 5 and 6 say this. And now... I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. I shall not, It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So the thorns growing up all around the promised land that used to be called the land of milk and honey... The thorns growing up show that it has been neglected because it's been rejected. God rejected the people, caused armies to come in and invade them, and it was no longer this beautiful land of milk and honey. God said, no rain. No one will till it. And what happened? Thorns, thistles grew up all over the promised land. Why? Because of their sin. That's why it happened. It was neglected because the Lord rejected his people because of their sin. So, also in a judgment situation, we see the crown of thorns shows that the father had rejected and neglected his Son because of sin. The sin that he was bearing. Not sin that he committed. No. Jesus is without sin. The Bible says he's tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. So this is not him bearing his own guilt. This is him bearing the guilt of others. You. And me. In both cases, however, that of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and that of the dear Lord Jesus Christ, now under the weight of rejection and neglect. It was only temporary. This was temporary. It was temporary for the people of old in the Old Testament. Seventy years they were under Babylonian captivity and God brought them back like he said he would. He promised to judge them like he said he would but he also promised to bring them back like he said he would and he did. The son of man was not neglected in death forever. He rose again just like God said he would. Nor was he ultimately rejected. Now he will be forsaken while bearing the full weight upon his own shoulders, upon his own soul. Remember on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those weren't just words. He didn't just feel like quoting the Psalms at that point because that's what that was. He was forsaken. He really was. So that you wouldn't have to be. But the Son of Man's sacrifice was accepted by the Father. The Father shows that by raising him from the dead, as we'll get to later. But for now, here we are. So the Crown of Thorns remind us of three things then. The crown of thorns on his head remind us of three things. What are they? The curse, rejection, and neglect. As well as, of course, just the blatant mockery and disrespect the the Romans meant by it in the first place. It, of course, represents that. But behind it is all this as well. It's a reminder of Jesus taking the curse upon himself. He's rejected by the Father, neglected momentarily. The crown of thorns reminds us of all those things. There's a lot in these Five verses, isn't there? There's a lot, and there's more. Next, because the shameful behavior isn't even close to being finished, what do they do next? Verse 18. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Empty words, of course. They're just jesting. Matthew Henry had some really great commentary on this verse. Listen. Those who pretend subjection to Christ but at the same time give themselves up to the service of the world and the flesh, do in effect the same that the soldiers did, who bowed the knee to him in mockery. Those who bow the knee to Christ but do not bow the soul, but they, they draw near to him with their mouths and, and honor him with their lips, but their hearts are, fra- are far from him. They put the same affront upon him that these here did. They are acting like they're worshiping him. Hail, King of the Jews! Ha, ha, ha! Let's laugh and spit and hit him, right? We see what's happening to Jesus here, and we hate it, naturally. How could you not? It is loathsome and horrible, But the point that Matthew Henry is making is this. If we honor Christ with our lips while our lives bear witness to the opposite, his point is this. Are we any better than these Romans who are doing it out of sport? That's his point, and it's a fair point, and it's a good point. If we honor him with our lips, yet our lives show the exact opposite, are we any better than those who do it for sport. I would say we're actually worse. Why? Which is more painful? When someone that you don't even know hates you, or when someone who says he loves you then lives in ways that show he actually hates you? Which is more painful? Is it not the latter? If a perfect stranger comes up to me at the gas pump and says, I hate your guts, I'd be like, okay, do we know each other? No, I just hate you. Like, okay. He's having a bad day. But if someone who says to me, I love you, Mm, me and you, awesome, but then yet lives as if he hates me, isn't that more painful? That's why I say it's actually worse for those who profess Christ and are acting like they mean it than those who don't even know him and are just pretending. It's worse. Let's not even dare commit such a horrible crime as these soldiers did by mocking Jesus, but let's absolutely avoid an even worse crime by pretending to honor Jesus with our lips while our hearts are far from him. That would be even worse, wouldn't it? I know that because I used to do that. I used to think I was in the faith while knowing my life was totally contrary to the truth. You know why? Because I walked an aisle and I said a prayer and I got wet and nothing happened in my life, to change at all. How do I know that now? By looking at my life back then. I loved my sin, and I looked for ways to get away with my sin, and I looked for ways to sin more. That's how you know whether you're in the faith or not. Do you like your sin and try to hide it and get away with it, or do you hate your sin? Does it bother you when you sin? does it really bother you so much that you want to say, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Help me not do that anymore. I hate it when I do that. Is that there? That's a good sign. That's a good sign God's working in you because guess what? That's not of the flesh. That's not of the world. That's not of the devil. When you're of the flesh, the world, and the devil, you love your sin. You try to get away with it. You justify it. You revel in it. You lie about it so you can do more of it. These men, of course, had no such feelings. They didn't mock him and then say, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. No, they're not even done. They look for more opportunities. Look at this. Verse 19, And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. According to Matthew 27, 29, this reed that they're hitting him with, um, came from a reed that they'd placed in his hand. They, they placed a reed in his hand to represent a king's scepter. I don't know if you knew this or not, but back then kings would hold usually a golden scepter and it, it represented the fact that they were the ruler. They had power. They had power to execute judgment. The this, this scepter in the hand represented things like that. And that's the reed that they then take from his hand and strike him with, Because that reed is to represent authority. And so when snatching the reed from Jesus' hand, they're essentially saying, see, you don't have authority. We have authority over you. Take that. See? And it's interesting because, oh, mankind has wanted to have authority over his God at many times and in many ways throughout human history, has he not? We do that even sometimes too, don't we? Something happens in our life we don't like, we're the judge, and God's in the dock. How dare you, how dare you let that happen to me? But we know full well that Jesus could have called down hundreds of thousands of mighty angels. Bright, angelic beings who would shock you just to look at one of them and they would have all had flaming swords. He could have called them down at any moment. But he didn't. Why? He's too faithful for that. He's too obedient for that. He would set aside his honor and his glory to see his Father's will carried out for the glory of the Father and for his love for his sheep. He was too good for that. He's too faithful for that. He would never do that. Not ever. He would take the shame that should have fallen on us. And then also, what's the text say next? Text also mentions that they spit upon him. They spit upon him. Spitting on someone, as you know, um, shows <laughs> it's a it's a vile form. It's a detestable form of reproach, isn't it? I mean, it, it displays one of the most shocking forms of disgrace that you could really do to someone. Um, in Numbers 12, Numbers chapter 12, the topic there is about Moses and Miriam. You might recall that Miriam is upset that, that Moses is the leader and she is uh, showing some contempt towards his leadership. And because of that, the Lord strikes her with leprosy. Moses wants to see her healed. And it says in verses 13 and 14 Moses cried out, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that, she may be brought in. That's just a reference to this action the Lord never prescribed, (laughs) spitting in someone's face. But apparently, in the Middle East, during that time, there was a practice where a father could show his extreme displeasure towards the actions of his daughter by spitting in her face. And in doing so, she would be shamed Not just at that moment, but for seven days, she would be shamed. Again, this is just a reference to that. There's nowhere in the Bible that the Lord prescribes that. Okay, so daughters, don't worry. Your daddy won't be doing that at God's command. Should not be doing that anyway. But it's a really disgusting way, is it not? It's a really disgusting way to show your disdain for someone. And it should should really never be done. I mean... Let me try to put in perspective what's happening here. Because we read about this and we're like, yeah, they they spit in his face. I mean, they spit on him. Let me ask you this. What if someone spit in your mother's face? I mean, for example, Houston. I mean, if Houston's around and you spit in Trisha's face, I I just don't know what would happen to you. I mean, what's... They peeled your face off the concrete. I mean, I just, I mean, right? Right? I mean, who could stand for that? I mean, why? It's so detestable and degrading and wretched to do that to anyone, right? And when you think about it being done to your own mother, you're like, Ooh, yeah, that makes me mad. What about Jesus? I mean, when you read that, do you go, oh, gosh, how could they, do? ooh, ooh. You Probably not. I don't know why we're like that. We think about it happening to our mother, and we're like, oh, son, you better not. But then we read it happening to Jesus, and we're like, yeah. What, what's the next verse say? We need to let this grip us. Because last I checked, Jesus is way more important than your mother. Okay? Right? And worthy of way more honor than your mother. And so much more important than your mother. Lord, open our eyes. They spit on him. Jesus. The second half of verse 19 says, And kneeling down in homage to him, And when they had mocked him and stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And that's where our text ends. But So the purple robe is taken off of him. His own clothes are returned to him, we're told. And that reminds us of the fact that Jesus laid aside his own glory, They're taking a purple robe off and they're putting his own clothes back on. This reminds us of the fact that Jesus laid down his own glory and he put on humanity. He put his own regular clothes back on him. Sweaty, dirty clothes. And what a picture. He became like us. He became like us. He lived among us in order to die in our place. Taking the punishment that we deserve. He deserves none of this deserves only to be worshiped for eternity, only to be loved for eternity. But these acts this day were just the beginning, and now he's led away to be crucified. What are the takeaways from this then? What can we take away? Well, we, we take away quite a lot already, but, but what, are, what are two of the main things that I really want you to take away, and then I think we're supposed to take away from this? Number one, Jesus bore all this horrible treatment and mockery as a part of bearing God's wrath that should have fallen on you and I. Granted, it's just the beginning of his suffering, but it was such a crime, such a crime against his majesty and his holiness and his honor, was it not? He took it, however, out of obedience to the Father's will and out of love for his sheep. So that's the first thing that we take away from this is this is part of the wrath bearing that you should receive. You and I, we're the ones that should be mocked and made fun of and beaten and spit upon. Why? Because every sin that we've ever committed is a spit in the face of God. This should be us. But Jesus bore it for you. He took it so you don't have to. He took the shame and the contempt so that you don't have to. Second thing, he gives us an example of how to suffer for righteousness' sake. You have to recall that as Mark's writing this, he's writing this in his mind to the people who are going to be reading it in his day. He's not thinking, you know, perhaps one day on this totally different continent that I know nothing about, perhaps there'll be a bunch of people in this country Maybe in a state, even in that country called, oh, I don't know, Alabama, uh, maybe they'll be sitting in a climate controlled room on nice fluffy chairs, and they would have gotten to this building in these amazing things called vehicles, and they would have had warm showers that morning. Water's just gonna pump right out of the wall, and it's gonna be, you can change the climate of it. It's gonna be amazing. You know, maybe they, maybe they will be reading this. Now, he's not thinking that. The Holy Spirit was, praise Jesus. But he's thinking more immediately about the people around him that are already suffering. But you have to recall, Mark's not writing this as he's watching it happen. Oh, gosh, they're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. According to what we know, Peter, Peter was one of the main sources of information that Mark got his info from. Now, Peter was there, but this is over a decade after all this went down, and people are already suffering for being followers of Jesus Christ at this time. So, part of also why Paul is, not Paul, but uh, Mark rather, is being so detailed in this is to give them an example. This is how we are to suffer also as Christ's followers, church, is what he's telling them. And guess what? That's what the Holy Spirit's telling you. And it's interesting that Peter was one of his main sources of info for this because in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 18, we, we read this. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 18. Listen to this. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he uses the greatest example. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see what Peter did there? He's saying, Suffer in this way. This is how you are to suffer, church, because they were suffering really suffering. James got beheaded in the book of Acts, we know. Peter was crucified upside down according to church history, tradition. All of them were martyred except for John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. They all gave their lives. This is why we know how very true all this is, because who would die for a lie? if it was a lie and you knew it was a lie, once they've got the sword at your neck and they say, okay, seriously, do you really believe this? If they were lying just to get some street cred or something, they would have said, whoa, whoa, wait wait a second. (laughs) Totally kidding. But they took the knife. Which is why we know one reason. What they wrote was true. Who would die for a lie? So Jesus leaves us this example of how we're to suffer. Look how Jesus suffered. Because Jesus suffered so much dishonor and shame through faith in Christ, we will be honored before God and not put to shame. And because Jesus suffered so much dishonor and shame, we too know how to trust and have faith when. The dishonor comes to you. Notice I didn't say if, but when. If you're a true follower of Christ, you will suffer persecution in this life. Jesus said so. But all that Jesus did for us gives us great hope. We'll one day see his face, won't we? And this gives us great courage until that day. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our shame upon yourself. And thank you, Jesus, for leaving us an example that we should walk in your steps. Father, I pray, please, please apply these eternal truths to our hearts. Help us to love you more and help us to be like you. We have no one greater. We pray this in your perfect name. Amen. (laughs)